Good morning, ZPC. It's good to be here. Uh, It's interesting. I'm not Jerry, obviously, and we'll discover in a minute why I think that I'm up here, not Jerry, this morning. Um, I'm also not Josh Mygat, okay? We have to set the record straight. Does everyone know Josh? Josh is our our senior high uh, 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 director, and uh, people get us confused often. Um, So I'm John. And Josh is upstairs right now. I take that compliment any day because I'm a little bit older than Josh is, so I'll take it. Uh, So we are nearing the end of our current series, Wake. And we're looking at the time from Easter, from Jesus' resurrection to Pentecost. And last week, um, Jerry talked about the ascension. And so that leaves us in an interesting space. Jesus has departed. He's ascended. And we have yet for the Spirit to come at Pentecost. So the disciples, we find them waiting at this point. They are waiting. They're in between something that's seemingly ended, Jesus being gone, and something that's yet to come. And so that's where we start off this morning. So if you have your Bible, grab that. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26 is what we're going to look at. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. Together, the crowd numbered about 120 persons and said, Friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit through David foretold concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their language, Akhaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead become desolate, and let there be no one to live in it, and let another take his position of overseer. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed and said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Now when I originally read through the scripture for this morning, this is what I mean. It became obvious, very obvious, why Jerry passed this off on to me. (laughs) So thank you, Jerry. Um... (laughs) Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> so, there's, but there's a lot going on. There's 14 verses here, and there's quite a bit that's happening, even though the disciples are just waiting. But there's quite a bit going on. When I read through it, some of the questions that popped into my head were, uh, you know, what in the world is a Sabbath day's journey? Did Luke really have to go into that much detail 
in regards to Judas's death. Is that necessary? Joseph, really? A possible replacement for Judas has three names? And Matthias only has one? That he gets a little bit shorted there. And then casting lots, is it really what it sounds like? Is it really like just, you know, throwing the dice and seeing what happens? It seems like chance. So these are some of the questions that I wrestled with when I first read it. So I'm hoping that this morning some of you might have the same questions or similar questions. And so for the next minute and a half, two minutes, I'm going to run through a couple answers. Sound good? Okay, this is going to be like rapid fire, okay? (laughs) So are you ready? Okay. First off, a Sabbath day's journey is actually not that long. It's only about three quarters of a mile. I remember when I read it, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, the disciples traveled a long way. That's really cool. You know, they must have been tired. No, it wasn't that long at all, about 3,000 feet. Um, So Jesus ascended in the Mount of Olivet, and they just kind of took a little bit of a hike to go back to this room that they're staying in. So it's not that far at all. Now, Luke sharing the details of Judas's death, um, that's, uh, you know, it's pretty, pretty gruesome. But despite the guts and the gore and the gnarly picture that Luke paints with his words, he's giving us a pretty poignant illustration. And the illustration that he's given us is, it's really the illustration of the consequence of sin. The consequence of sin in our life, it, 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 can, it adds this disgusting layer to who we are. And without Christ, we're kind of left to decay and rot. Now, Joseph. We're given three names, Joseph, Barsabbas, and Justice. And poor Matthias only gets Matthias. Now, Joseph um, would have been, uh, it's actually not three names, but Luke is very detailed in how he writes, so he gives us all three. Joseph would have been his Hebrew name, would have been his Jewish name. And then uh, Barsabbas would have been like his family name. He was the son of Sabbath, Barsabbas. And then Justice, that's an interesting take because that's a Latin name. So the implication is that Joseph had some kind of interaction with, with the Romans. And so the Romans would have given him that Latin name, Justice. Now, casting lots. This is, it, it really is kind of what it sounds like. Just a, a rolling of the dice. Now, if they probably didn't use that dice. They probably used rocks that they painted on or, or something like that. But it really is just a rolling of the dice. Now, what's interesting is in Jewish tradition, casting lots is a very spiritual thing. Now, today, we don't, you know, we think of just rolling the dice, you know, playing board games and it's chance. For the, for in the Jewish tradition, it's very much a spiritual thing. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. It was very much a spiritual thing. It was very much in the hands of God, in their, in their, in their view. Now, there you go. We could wrap it up. You want to go to lunch? <laughs> I don't get to get up here much, so you guys are stuck with me. I'm going to hold you here as long as I can. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but there are a few things I want to dive into. And the first being, uh, who is there? Luke gives us a pretty detailed um, list of who is, who's there. And we read through it. Peter and John, and if you count, you can count uh, and see how many people we have. Peter and John and James. Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Now, that's not Judas Iscariot. That's a different Judas. Um, but we have 11 Okay, so Judas Iscariot is, is, is die, has died, and now we have, are left with a hole. But Luke gives us this list, and as I was reading through it, I think the first thing that jumped into my mind was um, thinking about who these guys were. And I look around our church family, and we are made up of a lot of different people, different backgrounds, different professions. We come from different places. And as I was reading through that, I'm thinking, 
through the, who these people were. And it's interesting to me because I, I immediately thought about Simon, the zealot, and Matthew. Simon was a political conservative, okay? He despised Rome and everything that it stood for or didn't stand for. Simon, uh, he's called a zealot, okay? And zealots are also known as dagger bearers. They would, take, they would hide their knives in their cloaks. And given the chance, if they found a Roman maybe in a secluded alley or in the chaos of a crowd, they'd pull that knife out and take care of business. So I had a professor in college who said uh, that zeal in the first century was, was something that you do with a knife, not something you do on your knees in prayer. And so Simon was a zealot. Simon would do anything to take care of Rome and get it out of his life. Now, Matthew, on the other hand, was a Roman sympathizer. He was a tax collector for Rome. Most of, in the, of us in this room uh, would say that we're not terribly fond of the IRS, maybe. Not, but not, we would say we're not terribly fond of it. In the first century, a Jewish tax collector would be considered a traitor, would be, would be hated. Now, I can just imagine Jesus gathering the disciples kind of for the first time, getting them all in the room together, and saying, hey, guys, we're going to go around the room and we're going to introduce ourselves. Just give us your name and maybe what you did for a living before you came here. And I can imagine them going around the circle, and I can imagine them getting to Matthew, and Matthew saying, I'm a tax collector. I was a tax collector. And I can, I can picture Simon, if he's still got his dagger, that he's ready to go. He's ready to jump across the table and stick it to Matthew. Well, while we have you know, political differences maybe with Matthew and Simon, um, I think we have personality differences with Peter and Thomas. Thomas was a realist, a take-charge kind of person. And when Jesus couldn't be dissuaded from going to Jerusalem, it was Thomas who said, well, let's just go up and we'll die with you. When Jesus would speak in mystical, spiritual language, it was always Thomas who said, I have no idea what you're talking about. When the disciples insisted that Jesus had risen from the dead, it was Thomas who said, I'm not going to believe it until I can see and touch for myself. Thomas was cerebral. He needed rationale for his belief and his behavior. But Simon, on the other hand, was a dreamer. He followed his emotions for the most part. And when Jesus predicted his coming death, it was Peter who was first to say, surely you're not going to die. He was a positive thinker, and I can only imagine that Thomas saw him as, you know, kind of a pie-in-the-sky, Pollyanna type. When Jesus would speak in symbolic or mystical language around Peter, he would always say, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know that you are the Son of God. I know that you are the Messiah. And when the resurrected Christ appeared on the shore, it was Peter who first recognized him, jumped out of the boat, and swam to the shore. And Thomas was probably left to row the boat back by himself. It was also Peter who recognized Jesus on the water. And Peter said, Lord, if it's really you, ask me to come out and I'll meet you. And I can imagine Thomas turning around and saying to the other disciples, get the, get the life vest ready, because I think he's going to do it. So we have these strange mix of personalities, per personality differences, political differences, but in the presence of Jesus Christ, all these personalities were blended into one body. 
They were all together, Luke says, joined in prayer constantly. God uses us all, whether we're bold and loud like Simon, or whether we're quiet and influential like John. He uses us all, and he's looking to us. Back in verse 8, which Jerry talked about last week, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. He's looking to us. He says, you and you and you and you and me and you and you will be my witnesses. He's looking to us. The church, these 12 disciples, ZPC, and everyone in this room, we are God's plan A. The church is God's plan A. And the twist on that is there is no plan B. We are it. Now that said, we've got some work to do. Amen? Yeah, it's a pretty bold task. You will be my witnesses. We have work to do. Now, the disciples are given that charge, and now we find them waiting. They're waiting in this room, and Jesus says the Spirit's going to come, and they're just sitting and waiting. But they're not really just sitting. They're praying. They're taking care of business that needed to be taken care of. There's a, there's a hole in the apostleship, and they have to fill it. They're working, but they're also waiting. Jesus tells them in verse 4 to wait. And waiting is such an interesting thing. It implies that something is to come. It implies that there's some kind of anticipation. We're waiting. We're waiting. And as I was thinking about that word, waiting, I couldn't help but think about this book. I have a daughter. Her name is Emma. And Emma and I have read this book many a nights. And so um, there's, there's much wisdom in this book. And so I thought I would share something because when I was thinking about waiting, it popped out to me. There is a bear of little brain, and his name is Pooh. And Winnie the Pooh has a pretty fascinating take on waiting. He says, oh, there's beautiful illustrations that we've colored along the way. Pooh says this, when he was asked what he likes best, and we all know what Pooh likes best, what does he like best? Honey, that's what you'd think. Well, said Pooh, what I like best. And then he had to stop and think. Because although eating honey was a very good thing to do, there was a moment just before you began to eat it, which was better than when you actually were. But he didn't know what it was called. That's anticipation, right? Yes, that is anticipation. We wait with anticipation. We have to be willing to wait. Our willingness to wait is important. It reveals the value that we place on the object that we're waiting for. Do you catch that? Our willingness to wait reveals the value we place on the object we're waiting for. The disciples are waiting for the Spirit. And what are you waiting for? What do you value? We've got work to do, right, church? Right, church? <laughs> okay, good. Waiting shouldn't be a passive thing. There's work that has to be done. In verse 14, we see that the, the disciples are joined constantly in prayer. They prayed. And prayer is no small thing. It's inherent to who we are as Christ followers. Not because we think it's nice, but because Jesus taught us how to do it and told us to do it in all things. Waiting shouldn't be passive. Now, there's something else I want to jump into 
And that is in verses 21 and 22. Luke describes the qualifications that we're looking for for the next disciple. Okay? He tells us that it needs to be somebody who's been with Jesus in and out among us. And then it also has to be someone who's a witness to his resurrection. Correct? So there's a pretty detailed thing. Okay, they have to meet these qualifications. Now, a witness to his resurrection. The resurrection is an amazing thing. It's a central event in human history, regardless of your faith. And it's central to our Christian faith. Resurrection is interesting because resurrection is a historical event. And it's a beautiful truth. But there's also a principle that comes along with resurrection. A principle that we can hang on to now, today, and it changes the way we look at the world. Resurrection is the answer to the problem of endings. The answer to the problem of endings. One of the struggles as human beings is that we get these incredible, beautiful blessings that come into our lives. Whether it's relationships, whether it's children, we have these incredible blessings that come into our lives, but it never fails. Those incredible blessings at some point come to an end. Correct? Yeah. And that's a problem. We resist that. We don't like it when things end. Whether it's life itself or important people or relationships, they've, these blessings have come into our life and at some point they come to an end. And resurrection comes as an answer to that problem. Resurrection is the answer to the problem of endings. Now, there's a clarification that I think needs to be made. There's a huge difference between resurrection and resuscitation. Okay? Jesus was resurrected. He wasn't resuscitated. We know that because we see Jesus after he's risen from the dead, and he's unrecognizable to the disciples. And later in Acts, Luke introduces us to a guy named Paul, and Paul says if we're bound with Christ and we die with Christ, then we become a new creation. Resurrection is the introduction to something new in our lives, not the resuscitation of something old. Resurrection is the introduction of something new into our lives, not the resuscitation of something old. And I can imagine that the disciples, even though, you know, it seems like in this passage, they've kind of picked it up. They're like, you know what? Okay, we're going to start working. You know, up until this point, there, you know, there's a lot of times where they looked at Jesus and said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Or they were confused by what he was saying. But we see that something new is happening. Resurrection is the introduction of something new into our lives, not the resuscitation of something old. So when something comes to an end in our lives, if we continue to insist, if we continue to look at and wait and hope for that thing that ended to start over again, we'll miss out on the resurrection. We'll miss out on a new beginning. We'll miss out on the new creation. And that's well and good but, and easy to say, but it's not easy to do. It's hard to recognize resurrection in our lives. It's hard to recognize the new creation in our life. So we can think of it this way. Let's see. North, south, east, west. Okay. Uh, in the evening, the sun goes down, correct? And so if it's a beautiful evening and you're, and you're looking to the west and you're watching the sun just slowly fade beyond the horizon and then the darkness kind of closes in. It's a beautiful sunset. Now you can sit there and you can watch and wait for that sun to rise again. You'll never see it. 
because you're not looking in the right place. The only way you're going to see that sun rise again is if you turn and face a different direction. You have to turn and you have to face east, and inevitably that sun will rise again. Resurrection of a new day, a new creation. But you have to be looking in the right direction. And I think that's where we falter more often than not. Now, when you turn and you face and you look for something new, in order to recognize resurrection in our lives, we have to know where to look. In order to be able to come to terms with things that come to an end in our lives, and by the way, things end all the time, in order to come to terms with those endings, we have to also know how do we then turn and face the east and wait for something new. It's very easy for us to just get stuck over here and continue looking for the thing that ended to start over again. Now in this turning, when you say this thing's ended, when the reality sets in that this thing is over, when the reality sets in for the disciples that Jesus is gone, it looks like it's over, it isn't simply, well, just, let's just forget it. We'll forget it, we'll turn around, we'll, you know, we'll change our path. It's saying that this beautiful thing ended and I will have gratitude and I will have grief and I will have sadness and sorrow, but I will also be aware that as I orient myself and my vision and my attention to a place where I know I'm going to see a new beginning. How many of us have had things in our life end and we continue to face west? Pleading and grieving and asking for that sun to come right back up the way that it went down. And how many of us need to hear the good news that our grief is appropriate, but that you have an opportunity to turn around and at least wait for the sun facing the right direction? A new creation is waiting for you, and if you're fixated on the end, you'll miss the beginning. In John's Gospel, we come across Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, um, Jesus has been crucified, he's been placed in a tomb, and Mary Magdalene comes to visit Jesus, his, his tomb. And she gets there and she notices that the stone has been rolled away. And Mary peeks inside, and what does she find? Nothing. Jesus is gone. And she begins to weep. She begins to cry. She thinks someone's stolen the body. These aren't tears. Of, she doesn't know about the resurrection yet. She thinks something has ended. She believes in her heart that Jesus is dead and he's in this tomb, and she comes to find an empty tomb. And she begins just to weep. And as she's crying, a man comes to her and says, Woman, why are you crying? And she begins to explain that, you know, my Lord is dead and, and someone's stolen his body. And as she's talking and weeping, the man says, Mary. And it's in Scripture it says at that point that Mary understood who that was, that that man was Jesus. So then, you can assume Mary is pretty excited at this point. Wait a second. I was crying because you were, I, the end, this is the end of it. And you're starting over again. This is awesome. Things are going to go back to the way they were. But Jesus wasn't resurrected to take things back to the way they were, did he? Jesus didn't return to put things back to the way they were. Life isn't static it's always changing. We grow up and we grow old. Families experience joys and pains. Friends move and people graduate. Others lose their job and people that we love pass away. We make decisions that change our lives. 
for good or for bad. Some get married, some have kids. We reconcile, we forgive, we alter relationships. Some get cancer. But regardless of our own realities and experiences, life isn't static. If we become fixated on the end, we'll miss the beginning. Six years ago, almost exactly six years ago, I got a call from my mother. And she said, Jonathan, that's my name, Jonathan. But only my mother and my dad, dad called me that. So um, she called and she said, Jonathan, um, d- dad's not okay. Dad's not okay. He was out cutting the grass. He, um, he felt like he was going to pass out. Took him to the doctor, ran some tests. They found a, a significant mass uh, on his colon. And so they're going to rush him into surgery first thing tomorrow morning. I remember getting off of that phone call and believing that that was the end. That's all I could think about. I was fixated on the end. I couldn't see anything past that. We become fixated on the end, we miss the beginning. And I remember um, being so fixated on the end that I thought that this was it. And six years later, my dad is doing just fine. Stage three cancer, went through chemotherapy, long, hard road, but he's fine. But I never saw that in the midst of what was happening. If we become fixated on the end, we'll miss the beginning. We'll miss something new, a new creation. We'll miss the resurrection. You can't start the next chapter if we just keep rereading the last one. Now, what does that mean for us? This is what it means to become a witness to the resurrection in our lives. When really beautiful things in our lives come to an end, and yet at that same moment we can turn around and say that we know that there's going to be a new creation. If we can do that as a community, that we just don't believe the resurrection, we know the resurrection. If we can do that as a community, we can change things. We can do anything we want. We can be God's plan A. So we've got work to do, church. Amen? One last thing. Jesus tells Mary, as, as she's excited that Jesus is resurrected, Jesus tells Mary something that we probably wouldn't want to hear. Jesus says, don't hold on to me. Don't hold on to me. And he says that because he, sa- he, he, he knows that there's work to be done. And they are charged with the task. He gives her a part to play. He gives us a part to play. So we have work to do. Let's go and receive a new spirit. Amen.